Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. And I love it. And as the Italian poet and playwright Cesare Pavese once said, we don't remember days, we remember moments. Indeed we do. Today's uh, first guest is a gentleman by the name of Paul Natkin, an amazing photographer, an iconic photographer. Why? Because he's photographed pretty much everybody. In fact, they asked him and he hadn't done Mozart or Beethoven. And I will mention his book because it's amazing. Photography like you haven't seen. Brilliant images of amazing artists. It's called Moments of Truth. So... My name's Paul Natkin. I'm a photographer in Chicago. Uh, I've been photographing musicians since 1975, 1976. In that era, uh, I started doing it because I love music and wanted to hang around at concerts and never in my wildest dreams that I ever think that I would actually be able to earn a living doing it. But somehow that worked out. This was 1975. So there was this new magazine out called Rolling Stone. It was not really new, but it's fairly new. And I made up this lie that I was on assignment from Rolling Stone to photograph this concert. And I walked to the back door and I walked in and I got ready to tell the lie to the 
guard back there and he saw my equipment and he looked at me before I could say a word. He said, just go, you're with the press. Just go in and do whatever you want. Just don't get on stage. And it never was that easy again, but that was my start in the music industry. And the artist that was playing that night was this fairly unknown guitar player by the name of Bonnie Ray. And I went in and shot pictures of Bonnie, came home. And I, at that point I was a, an okay photographer. So the pictures came out pretty good. And my only thought was I had no idea how to earn a living. Like, what do you do with the pictures once you take them? But I just knew I wanted to go to more concerts. So I started making friends with the promoters in town, concert promoters. And I offered them free pictures in return for letting me into all their shows. And all of a sudden, four months after that, I was shooting five nights a week, 52 weeks a year. I was going to everything that happened musically in the city of Chicago. I think it's really important to make these guys or girls or, who, or bands, whatever, look three-dimensional. And the way they look three-dimensional is that the lights from behind them light up the back of their heads and the back of their shoulders. And it pr provides kind of, the only way I can describe it, it's kind of like a halo effect around their heads, which separates them from the background. You know, some of these bands bring 300 lights on stage and they, you know, you know they have a whole truckload of lights. If they're all in the picture, it's not a black background anymore. It's now a yellow and red and green and blue background, which to me makes a much more interesting picture. If you shoot from the stage, there are certain things you have to do from the stage, like to get a picture of a drummer, you almost always have to shoot from on stage. And, you know, once you're up there, when I get up on stage, I want to get off stage as quickly as possible and get back to the front. So a moment that rocked my world was in 1984. I got a call from a publicist from Warner Brothers asking me if I wanted to go up to Minneapolis and photograph Prince's birthday party. And it was the week the Purple Rain came out and he was going to play for an hour and a half at his party, a uh, private party. And he was going to wear all the clothes from Purple Rain and he was going to sing all the songs from Purple Rain. So I figured if they were calling me, they were calling a hundred other photographers and there was going to be basically a rugby scrum in front of the stage with everybody trying to figure out how to get close enough to get a shot. But I decided to go anyway. Bought a plane ticket, went up to Minneapolis, got in a cab, went to the club. And uh, I found out that I was the only photographer allowed in the building that night. And I stood front of the stage, directly in front of Prince. I was four feet away from him for an hour and a half. Uh, he obviously knew that I, <clears throat> that I hadn't snuck in, that I actually belonged there. So the whole night long, he kept on posing for me on stage. And... <clears throat> I had shot him a bunch of times in the past, but he always hated being photographed. So he's very elusive on, on stage. But at this point it was like, wow, what's going on here? And uh, it ended up being the most lucrative day of photography that I've ever had in my life. 
you know, the funny thing is with artists, I think, you, you know, you never know if you're going to catch them on on or off day, you know, are you? Exactly. You never know if you're going to catch them on a good day or on a day when they kick you out. About a month, about three weeks later, I got a call from a publicist in New York who had a client by the name of Bruce Springsteen who was starting a tour, the Born in the USA tour, uh, also in Minneapolis. And she asked me if I wanted to come up and shoot the opening of the tour. And I got there the day before the tour started. She met me in the lobby of the hotel and we got in a rental car and we drove to the venue where he was shooting his first video ever for the song Dancing in the Dark and uh, with Courtney Cox. And he, it was directed by Brian De Palma and it was Brian De Palma's crew and Bruce and his band and me in this empty venue for seven hours. And I had total access to just go anywhere I wanted, shoot anything I wanted. And uh, it was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. Uh, And then the next three nights, he played the first three shows of his tour and I shot all of those. And uh, that's when I acquired my biggest collection of Bruce Springsteen pictures ever. Well, the day before was the video shoot and I shot stills during that whole thing. And then the day, day of the first show, the video crew stayed there and he wore the same clothes that he did in the video. And Courtney Cox like walked out into the crowd right before the song started. And the video crew shot it from the stage looking out at the audience because now it was a full crowd. So they, you know, so they could add it, add it into the video and make it look like he was playing in front of a crowd throughout the whole thing. So I basically shot for seven hours one day and then I shot the song in front of an audience the next day along with the rest of the show. The next one was my neighbor was the rock critic of the Chicago Sun-Times and called me up one day and said, I've been assigned to go to New York and interview Keith Richards for Keith's uh, first solo album, Talk Is Cheap. And uh, the sometimes it's too cheap to send a photographer. So he called me and said, you know, if you want to buy a plane ticket, come along with me, you can take the pictures and we'll use them in the sometimes and then you would have the pictures to use for whatever you wanted to use them for. So I bought a plane ticket the next morning. We got on the plane, went to New York, checked in the hotel, dropped our bags, and then walked over to his manager's office and uh, knocked on the door. And the door opened up and Keith Richards was standing there, who's really my only idol in the world. And uh, I did a five-minute photo shoot with him. It was one of the best shoots I've ever done. At one point during the shot, during the shoot, I didn't even see it, but he gave me the finger. And so when I got home, I developed the photos the next day and I sent a bunch of photos to the Sun-Times and they used them. I didn't even see the shot (coughs) with the finger. I didn't even notice that. Until a year later, somebody looked at the proof sheet and said, Hey, why didn't you print the shot where he was giving you the finger? 
and that's become one of my biggest selling prints at that at, from that point on. Uh, but I uh, I sent a bunch of prints to his manager. So when I made the prints for the Sometimes, I could make an extra set and give them to his manager. And uh, I said, I wrote a note in there and said, hey, I heard you guys are going out on the road and doing a tour. If you need a tour photographer, let me know. Having no idea how to be a tour photographer, but figuring I could figure it out as I went along. Never expected to ever hear from her again. And she called me up right before Thanksgiving and said, Thanksgiving Day, fly down to Atlanta, meet us at the hotel. You're our tour photographer. And I ended up spending three weeks with him on the road from East Coast to West Coast and back. And uh, six months later, I wrote the same note to her because the Stones were going out on the Steel Wheels tour and uh, got the same call, like fly to Boston, come to the hotel, meet us in the lobby. You're the tour photographer. When it comes to touring, um, I would, I, I didn't get paid. They paid all my expenses. They, you know, plane ticket to fly out to the first date, uh, rode on the jet with them from city to city, stayed in the same hotels they stayed in. They paid for all that. They paid for all my film and processing. Uh, I own the, I own the copyright to the photographs, but they own the right to use the photos for whatever they want to use them for. But I get, I also get to use them for, uh, editorial purposes forever. And, uh, after the morning out morning after every show, I would meet with the two managers, send a stones tour on Keith's tour was one manager. And, uh, they would go over the photos and pick the ones that they liked. And I would make duplicates and send them to their publicity company and then use them for publicity. But, and those are the ones that I could send out for editorial purposes. The whole key to my business is building trust, but building a relation, a business relationship that goes both ways. I get what I need, they get what they need. And it's building up trust. They know I'm not gonna send pictures to the National Enquirer. I'm not going to send out a picture that's not approved uh, because I got plenty of pictures that are approved. I always look at new bands that put out one album and before they even start touring, they're on the cover of Rolling Stone. And as fast as they go up, they're going to go down and they're going to be back where they started. Unless they learn that it's a business and you've got to keep it going. And it's like, I would rather be a band that starts from nothing and gets to a point where they're playing, where I'm playing a 3,000 seat venue in every city for the next 20 years than be a band that starts from nothing, plays a hockey arena in every city, and the next year they're washed up has-beens. The next one I would talk about would be the cover shot of my book, which is a picture of Mick Jagger and Tina Turner singing together. Uh, this was at a concert called Live Aid, which was a big charity concert that took place in London and Philadelphia at the same time. And uh, I shot the Philadelphia show and I shot 
67 bands in one day, one after another with no breaks in between. And the final act of the day was Mick Jagger with a, with a solo band. He was great. He, you know, he was great as a solo artist, you know, not as good as the Stones. And halfway through a set, you know, I'd already been there for 11 hours. I was so, I basically couldn't even focus my eyes anymore, much less focus the camera. And then he brought Tina Turner out to sing a song with him. I think it was Street Fighting Man. I couldn't tell you unless I went back and looked at the tape. And uh, I just started, I mean, it was a great moment. I just started shooting like crazy and didn't know what I had until I got home to Chicago the next day, developed all the film. And uh, instinct must have taken over. And I, it was one of, it's one of the greatest pictures I ever took. I mean, it, you look at the list of people that played in, in Philadelphia, Madonna played back by the Thompson Twins, uh, Black Sabbath reunited for three songs. Uh, one of my favorite moments of that day was uh, during the finale, Harry Belafonte and Lionel Richie were jamming together. Uh, Jack Nicholson was one of the MCs. And it was like that. And one of the highlights, obviously, was a reforming of Led Zeppelin with Phil Collins on drums taking John Bonham's place. And that, that was a famous event where Phil woke up in the morning in London, played a set at Live Aid in London, <clears throat> got on the Concord, flew to New York, which took two and a half hours, three hours, whatever the time was, got in a limo, drove down to Philadelphia and played with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones. So two continents in one day. Yeah, and uh, but, but to see, see Robert, Robert and Jimmy on stage together, you know, they eventually started touring together, and, you know, as a sort of Led Zeppelin band. But that was the first time they played together in years. Great, great stories from times gone by by Mr. Paul Atkin. Paul has a book out called The Moments of Truth and um, there'll be more of him in uh, a future podcast telling more great stories about the photographs and the stories behind them. We'll be back in a moment with more on Moments That Rock. Okay, on with the show. Our next guest is a lady called Sharon from her band Ruby Ate the Fig. But as usual, we'll let them tell you about themselves. I am Sharon El Yashar with Ruby Ate the Fig. We are a American rock band with Middle Eastern color and groove. And we have musicians from both genres, master musicians from both genres, rock musicians and Middle Eastern musicians. And I'm the founder of the band and the writer. And my vision of Ruby Ate the Fig is to write songs of the desert and to combine uh, the Middle Eastern influences as well as American rock. When I started writing these songs, I knew that I somehow, even though you know I was born in Jerusalem and raised in America, my music was still Eastern in a way. And I knew I needed to 
be more American, more rock. And I had the fortune of meeting Mark Mann, who's a brilliant musician and producer and keyboardist and vocal arranger. He um, played in Concert for George at the Royal Albert Hall. And he's the guy with the cap in Concert for George. And he played all of George Harrison's parts. He also worked with George Harrison on his last couple albums. Um, doing vocal arrangements and he's worked with Jeff Lynn and he's worked with everybody, Danny Elfman, he's worked with everyone. So Mark brought me to America, which was great. Like, you know, symbolically, he took my songs and with his brilliant guitar playing and vocal harmonies, um, Ruby Ate the Fig became what it is. Mark and I co-produced it. And I had the, the honor of working with him. We produced, um, our EP, Caress the Moon, which we released a couple of years ago, and now this last album, Desert Electric, which we just released in June. One of our songs uh, that I wrote called Gilgamesh um, was also inspired by the desert. And the words are, if you want to be inside of you, I will close the light for you. If you want to be in secrecy, I will bless your back to me. If you want to be flying on a camel to the moon, I will pack your bag for you. But if you want to be in love with me, then follow sacredly. And I always thought when I wrote that song, I'm like, oh, yeah, the words just pop in. I thought, oh, that was a love song from a woman to her lover. If you want to be if you want to do this, I'll help you. If you want to do this, I'll help you. I'll, I'll support you, but if you want to be in love with me, follow sacredly. After playing that song for a bunch, I realized that it was really a love song from the desert to me. And I, I really feel like the desert is a lover. And the Sinai Desert, where I've spent a lot, many, many years, um, is just so powerful and so mystical and so inspiring that I... I again, is the major source of my, my inspiration um, for my words. We have another song called They Came With Stones, and this is based on a true story from the Bedouins. And um, there were these two girls, Bedouin girls, and they were in an arranged marriage. They were going to marry these two boys that they didn't love. And they really didn't love them. And um, so they decided that at night they would sneak out and they climbed this mountain, which is now named after them, Jabal Banat, the mountain of the daughters. And they climbed this mountain at night and they braided their hair together and they jumped off. They'd rather die than be married and, and have a horrible life. So they came with stones is about how the other family came with stones to trade for the girls, for the daughters. So I changed uh, the lyrics a little bit. Um, it's a, my family does that. My great grandmother, who was Sephardic, used to change the lyrics to all the songs. And if they were depressing or negative lyrics, she would make them positive. <laughs> so I did that with the story. And in my story that came with stones, I have the girls climbing up the mountain, braiding their hair together, jumping off. But then they fall into a flash flood and they get swept away into freedom, into a beautiful life. And they have their own garden. I was born in Jerusalem and raised in California in the desert. Um, and one of my big moments as an artist was when my 
composition teacher um, said to me, write who you are. If you're from the farm, write about the farm. If you're from the city, write about the city. And I thought, yeah, I'm from the Middle East, but I was raised in America. We were totally delighted to um, play support for Jefferson Starship, who really are my heroes. Um, Grace Slick is like my musical mom. And people say I sound like her and, and my writing is like hers, um, which is a big compliment. So we got to open for them about eight months ago in California. It was lovely. It was incredible. And one of the amazing things for me as, you know, I was just up on stage and we were playing and I look over to the left and the entire band is sitting there, just sitting on the sides, listening. They listen to our whole show, which is everyone says it's very rare. Usually they're in the dressing room. So I was just like, wow, they're and they're sitting and they're listening. And then, of course, afterwards, they each one came up and said, we love you. Let's work together again. Let's you know, you remind us. Welcome to the Jefferson Starship family, you know, um, and they also mentioned that Breathe With Me Slowly did remind them of White Rabbit, um, which it does. It's kind of Breathe With Me Slowly is kind of a nod to White Rabbit. Um, so that was a real that was a real, you know, highlight for me. And then they played. So, of course, I stayed and um, I went down front and, and watched them and, and they were singing Miracles. It's like, if only you believe in miracles. And I was up there and Kathy Richardson, who's now the lead singer, I was in the front and she recognized me and we were like kind of dancing together about miracles. And I'm like, yeah, this is a miracle for me to play with them. And then I went backstage and then they invited me to go up there and sing um, Volunteers of America with them. <laughs> so that was a real cool moment. I'm standing up there with them singing Volunteers of America, which is one of my favorite songs. And I'm just like, oh my God. This was just amazing. And, you know, I had an interesting ha thing happen to me, which which was a moment that rocked in a real subtle way. I just um, went to England and Ireland. I think, you know, um, totally fell in love with Ireland. I was really like stunned because I'm a desert lover and I'm like Ireland, but fell in love with Ireland. But we met we met up with some relatives um, and and this one woman um, said, oh, you know, I gave her our CD and she said, oh, I'll, I'll text my daughter, Claire, to see if she knows who you are. And I said, you know, it's, un it's unlikely that they know who we are in Ireland. I mean, we never played there. We're not on radio there. Da, da. Anyway, she texted her daughter and her daughter says, oh, Ruby ate the fig. I love them. They're one of my favorite bands. <laughs> and Breathe With Me Slowly is my friendship song with my best friend. So I said, no, that can't be possible. Like, how is that possible? So um, I spoke with the, the young woman who's 23 years old living in Belfast and she found me online and she's been following me for years. It, it just really blew my mind. But that is a moment that rocked. I mean, I used to, you know, music has always been my safe space. I think a lot of us can relate to that. Certainly as a teenager and in my 20s, music was just like, it was just really the place to go that was safe and incredible and inspiring and where I want, where I lived. I basically lived in music. And of course, listening to all these amazing artists that inspired me, um, like Grace Slick or like Joni Mitchell or, you know, like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. I love the 90s rocks, the rock and roll bands. They really inspired me. For me, one of my dreams as an artist is to have a young woman listen to my songs and have it be one of her favorite songs and her friendship song. 
So um, it was on a very small scale. It was one person. <laughs> that was just like, wow, my music is now solace and comfort and and connection for a young a young woman. I have to say, being in the desert and writing and being on stage with with Ruby Ate the Fig are my biggest moments that rock. And I think they always will be more than any kind of success, even though we want that and everything. But just when I'm with them, it's just I just go into heaven. There's a song called The Tent on our new latest album called Desert Electric, and it's based on a famous story. And it's the story of this man who was this fierce warrior, um, tribal, it's a tribal story, fierce warrior, and he would kill and rape and pillage for years and years and years and years. And finally, the other surrounding communities got together and they had this huge, big battle. All of his soldiers were killed and then he fled on foot. He abandoned all his soldiers. So he's this really mighty warrior. And he came upon a, a tent in the middle of the desert. And there was a woman there named Yael, and she was gathering herbs, and she came up to him, and he said, you have to hide me, you have to hide me. She said, okay, please come in. So she welcomed him into the tent, and he asked her for water to drink, but she gave him milk, which apparently made him sleepy. And then while he was sleeping, she knew he was a vicious person. And when he was sleeping, she nailed a stake through his head. I wrote this song years ago, but I wasn't ready. To, but I, I, I was ready now. He's the warrior, and then she comes to him. When you hear the story, you know that they had sex, and she slept with him, and then he passed out, and then she nailed a stake through his head. But anyways, I'm like, you know what? This is my story. This is my song. In my song, I have him come up to her, to the tent, and saying, hey, you know, you have to hide me. And she says to him... If you pleasure me, I will let you in. So the way my story goes is he came in, they made love, had sex, everything was great, and then she killed him. <laughs> so there you have it. Another moment that rocked. Well, two moments that rocked, actually. You heard Sharon from her band Ruby Ate the Fig talking about some great moments in the desert and uh, great stories, great lyrics from songs that have stories around them. And before that, photographer. From his new book, The Moment That Truth, The Moment That Truth, The Moment of Truth, a guy called Paul Atkin, excellent storyteller, great stories around the images. Hope you enjoyed the show. Moments That Rock is the title of the podcast. It comes to you through the Pantheon Group of Podcasts, which is the largest music podcast site in the world, and a pretty damn good one, if I say so myself. So come back, and if you enjoyed it, subscribe, and come back and listen to more. We'll see you next time round. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.